you're a mess. You've come back from contextual research. You have a truckload of observations. You have no idea what it means. But then you put it all up on a wall and then you start to see patterns and why people are doing similar things. In the deep mess of synthesis, it just hits you at one moment. It's like, oh my goodness, yes, this is why they're doing it. We wanted to start a conversation and start a community where we would go on a mission to celebrate and to learn from designers, leaders, researchers, and thinkers who create digital experiences that matter. My name is David Whited. I'm the director of the CX practice at Highland, a digital experience agency in Chicago, Illinois. Here at Highland, we research, design, and build digital products and experiences for customer-centric companies and mission-driven organizations. I'm Mike Nowak, product strategist. And I'm Carissa Shelton, lead experience designer. Welcome to Experiences That Matter. Welcome to this episode of Experiences That Matter. Uh, we're here in Chicago, uh, calling from Highland Solutions. Um, and this is David Whited. I'm the director of the CX practice at Highland. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Nowak. Good morning, everyone. Well, I guess I don't know if it's morning where you are, but hi. And uh, Carissa Shelton. Hey, hey, everyone. Yeah, so we're, we're really uh, glad today to have Amrita Kulkarni with us, um, who is a design strategist at Gensler office here in Chicago. Uh, Amrita, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Well, we're, we're going to be talking today about something that um, um, I know the three of us are kind of addicted to, Amrita. And um, so we're really glad because we've discovered that you are addicted to the same thing that we're addicted to as as a design strategist. And um, I found that you were you were addicted to the same thing that we're addicted to when I looked at your website, at your portfolio. And you said this, um, you said, hidden at the heart of every challenge lies a game-changing user insight that needs an empathic search. And that is where I belong. When I think about sort of my own professional sort of interest and passion, like I don't know if I've ever identified with somebody as much as I have with you in that statement. Um, just this, this understanding and this identification that when you do the type of design research, the type of customer user insert, uh, research that we do, like often we stumble upon these really, really powerful game-changing insights uh, we often call them sort of pivotal insights um, that make all the difference when it comes to design. So I'd like to talk today about um, some game-changing insights that you've uncovered. Um, I think we're going to start in in London, uh, go to Africa, um, and then maybe back here to Chicago by the end of this episode. Uh, but yeah, we're really, really glad that you're here uh, with us today to talk about this. So there are, we are insight junkies as well. So maybe this is like a insight synonymous sort of uh, meeting that we're actually having today. So I'm curious, like when, when, like, when did you start to see this, like in your life? Like, when did, when did you start to notice this pattern of like, you had this passion to uncover insights? When, when did you first stumble upon that? I think there's a difference between the things that I was unconsciously doing and then the moment when I started to realize that, oh, this is what I've been doing for the past four or five years. And so that moment for me was when I was studying in London at the Royal College of Art and Imperial College London. Uh, And while we were on this uh, 
adventurous journey uh, called innovation design engineering. And that's when I started to be able to give each activity a word. Hmm. Opportunity mapping, design research, contextual inquiry. And when I then started looking back at my time as an architect, I worked as an architect uh, for about four years before I did my master. I realized that I was very much human-centered to begin with. Even as I was designing a building, I would begin with a section, which is the hardest thing. I mean, why would anyone start drawing the section of anything that doesn't exist? Because I wanted to think about how someone standing in the space will imagine feeling. And so I think for me, it was more of a realization that, yes, this is actually who I am. And I really want to stay in this track. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think we've. I've experienced that too, right? Like you've, you've got this natural passion for this thing and you've actually been doing it in a non-formal structured way. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, there's a whole discipline around, around this thing <laughs> that I've been doing sort of naturally my whole life. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like you mentioned the architecture thing, like, can you think of it t- anything like earlier in your life, like where, where, like this sort of quest for insight, this quest for understanding around human behavior or, or human need, like anything from mm-hmm. earlier than that, that that strikes you as important or interesting? I think I can maybe think of examples in my personal life. When I was growing up, uh, my parents had a really lively social circle. And so we had a lot of family friends and we would constantly be at each other's homes. And naturally there were a lot of kids and I was one of the older ones. And so I got to see uh, some of the, the young children playing about and just maybe arguing or, you know, being disappointed in some things. And I would always wonder, like, okay, why is this person feeling this way? How did this occur in this context, right? So if a kid, for example, goes running to his mom and dad uh, about, oh, you know, this happened. He took my toy away. I always would come back and say, well, you know, actually, when we were downstairs, he promised something. And then this is why it worked out this way. And so the wanting to get to the bottom of it, yeah, you I were doing always existed. <laughs> doing root cause analysis with the kids. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. new words for it now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, I know that you've been doing a lot of work recently uh, with Gensler in the in the healthcare arena um, here in the United States, and that you've also been looking at large organizations and, and trying to understand how uh, those large organizations can become learning communities. And that's something I'd, that I'd like to get to. But uh, I, I think we'd like to start by hearing where you started crafting um, this sort of this craft of gaining insights, like where you started to, to understand how to do this and you started putting some structure and practice around this uh, quest for insights. And I know that that happened on this really powerful trip that you took to Mali with uh, the Royal College of Art. It just sounded such a, like an exciting prospect where one could jump into an entirely different culture learn about some things uh, in terms of new behaviors, specifically because we were dealing with an off-grid rural Mali context. So this is something I knew nothing about, and that excited me because I wanted to learn something. Uh, what What did they tell you about the trip? 
like, what did they communicate beforehand that made it so compelling to you? What was it that, I mean, you've talked a little bit about like how it was in a context that you'd never been in before that you didn't feel like you understood, but was there a design challenge that was there that, that was really compelling to you? We knew that we were there to understand what cultural norms exist in regards with lighting and mm. how we can help or assist but also identify new opportunities for those kinds of contributions. We were well aware that a lot of NGOs and other organizations were already working in the space where they were okay. donating lights across uh, the uh, rural uh, region where we were. Uh, and but these we, were these were like lar- these were like uh, street lights, right? Or like this right. is not just like lights in homes, but like big public lighting projects. That's right? correct. Yes, because I think to be politi- politically correct, people want to get away from the sense of ownership that they will have to resolve if we're then starting to starting to talk about individual ownership. And mm-hmm. so, street lights are not owned by anybody, and so. It was uh, probably an easier way for people to contribute in this context. And so we were seeing a lot of contributions coming in through that lens. But as uh, one of our uh, team members was in the context earlier than us, he started to observe that it's not really about lighting the space. It's about lighting an activity that needs help in the dark. So there's a huge difference here. And for us, it was interesting to see what that means, what the culture really holds valuable, and how can a product actually help in that context? Yeah. So like reflecting back on it, like was this, 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 the game changing insight for you, this, this lighting, lighting, not a space, but an, an activity. So I'm curious, like, how did the team arrive at that? Or how did they arrive at that understanding? Like, what what was the whole process? What was the journey to that understanding like? Yeah, I, we had actually two game-changing insights. One was this one that we sort of um, uh, stumbled upon earlier. So as a team, we conducted a uh, sort of combination of exploratory research technical research and co-creation research. So to begin with, this exploratory research was just about contextual immersion. Like I mentioned, one of our team members was in the context before the rest of the team. So he was able to send us photos and videos of just life in these contexts. And so as we started to understand what these ceremonies were, what was individual compounds looking like, you know, what is the polygamy society looking like polygamous society uh, looking like there how do these fun- things function we started to get a, a better understanding of who are our key user groups here and they were between women who had their own women's associations they had a set of common cash and how that system worked how they paid for the welfare of the village and then on the other hand we had the young women's associations and they that involved a lot of traveling to the cities back and forth, as well as uh, conducting these ceremonies and hosting these kinds of occasional activities. Then we had children who also had their own activities going on. And so as we started to identify these user groups, we started mapping a day in their life 
across each. And then from those sort of journey moments, we mapped what objects were around them. What were the props being used? What were some of the challenges they had? And then which of those activities were occurring in the day versus at night? So that we can then see which activities can be pulled over into a situation where there is some form of light. And that really helped us get along with the, the deeper understanding of, okay, well, but wait a minute. They, they want to continue picking the fruit after dusk. How are they going to do it with a streetlight? They can't do that, right? And so thinking about empowering an activity as opposed to making visible a space. I think that's where we stumbled upon that. And we were sure to catch that in different ways because we also learned from one of our interviews that women really didn't want to be recognized at night while they're going about doing their things, right? So this is a community that has lived off-grid for probably generations. And so lighting a space is an alien thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so how do you build comfort with an alien object by giving it the use that they desire? And so that's where for us, it became about empowering an activity and lighting that group activity. Yeah. And what I'm curious, uh, Mike and Chris, I imagine you, you've got questions here too, but I'm just curious, like, what were the immediate design implications for this? Because, you know, I, uh, yeah, I think, you know, like you've got these big, you've got these big companies, right. Who, who have great incentive to, to, you know, use the streetlights that they've already developed. Mm-hmm. Right. And to just introduce those streetlights into this, but you all have this big insight. Was there pushback from those big companies? Did you get the chance to present these insights any of those companies that produce streetlights? We, we did consult with some, but because we were not answerable to them, we didn't have to do what they may have suggested. I, I'm not saying that they did in any way. Uh, in, in that sense, because we were working for the foundation, we were quite free okay. to do what we felt right based on the insight. And I think as uh, we realized that this is the core insight, we understood that we cannot just take a static, powerful lamp and have people move it about wherever they needed it. So then, okay, so this thing has to be a mobile lamp. It has to be able to move about easily. And then that adds a whole level of complication because here they don't have concrete or tar roads, you know. (laughs) We're talking about really uh, rural environments. And so what can we do that can survive the heat, the context, the, you know, the paving and so on. And so from there, it has to be mobile. It has to be solar because of course we have to use solar lights and then it has to be easily movable using the existing infrastructure, right? So if it is movable, but too heavy, then maybe they need a cart. They don't have all kinds of carts there, but Mm -hmm. they do have donkey carts that can take up a certain weight. So we did think about the entire system as well as the product itself Mm -hmm. as we were going through these iterations. And I mentioned earlier that we also conducted co-creation research, which was 
us identifying the various scenarios of how these conceptual lights might be used. And when we landed there, we started doing also the co-creation research bit where we started to talk to the villagers and you know men separately, women separately, together as a group, just to check out the different dynamics to understand what kinds of lighting scenarios resonated best. Hmm. So here's where we got into the second insight, where some of our concepts were about individual lights that could be distributed across different compounds and that they would come together physically at ceremonies. So imagine a situation where maybe there are these individual lights that people bring along to the center of the village and maybe hang onto a tree or an installation. And so that becomes the moment of ceremony. And as we were talking through uh, what people liked or preferred and wanted to see more, they were going for the, yes, I want the one with the more things, but the way they behaved was as a collective. Mm -hmm. So it was up to us to, again, discern what the difference between what people say they want and what they need. And again, Mm -hmm. we said, okay, this is where we have to make the call that we are moving not from the individual, but to a collective. And so we decided to rethink the daily and the ceremonial to just make it a ceremonial lamp where it was one thing owned by the entire village and sort of parked by the village chieftain's hut. Hmm. And that is also where we installed the solar panel that we made from scratch. And so we worked out a system where the village is now proud to own this thing that is used at various ceremonies and can be checked out by various groups. So women huh. during the fruit picking season or you know, men when they return after the monsoon. And so how can different groups use this ceremonial light, but for their extra long days? That's a really, really great so story. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a question about that, but so, so much to say is just so interesting. It's so clear to me as I hear you talk about it, like how important um, the contextual uh, understanding is here, not just the stated needs of individuals, right? But the deep understanding of the context in which those needs surface mm-hmm. and, and need to be met is, has, uh, has so many implications for design. Uh, I just find that so fascinating that, that that deep contextual piece is really what led or is, is what informed a lot of design choices that were, were super important in your ultimate mm-hmm. kind of product. Yeah, and I would actually say, imagine if we had not done that contextual research, mm-hmm. we would have missed both insights. We yeah. would have probably ended up designing some form of streetlight. Yeah. How would that have helped anyone? You know, So it's really uh, mind-blowing the value that contextual learning can bring to any design journey. Yeah, yeah you know, it strikes me as I, I mean, as I listen to it, to the story, like the thing that you created was... Um, uh, it was beautiful in its identification with the community. You know, it, it was so fitting and arose so profoundly out of the behavior that, and the sort of communal practices that there's something about that 
like whenever we find that thing that arises out of human needs, even if the physical artifact itself isn't a thing that's beautiful, there's a certain beauty to it because it's so fitting. I don't know if uh, it, it just always strikes me that when you stand back from a thing that you create out of real user needs, it, it always just strikes me as beautiful. Yes, you know, absolutely agree. And I think for me, a lot of times when I see solutions that I don't necessarily have uh, had an opportunity to engage with, but I see how they fit and I'm like, oh, of course, <laughs> why, why has this not already happened before? But I think that's the beauty. Yeah. I yeah. I, I also, I, I really love how um, there's, uh, there's, you kind of articulate this methodology of how you figured out those contextual pieces, because I think in the design world, there's, um, uh, there's, there, there can be this challenge where it's like, you know, we're, we're, we talk to our users or the people we're ultimately designing for, and then anything beyond that, um, we just have to rely on inspiration for. Mm. I feel like we're always talking about the like the the famous Henry Ford quote, where it's like if I asked if I asked my the customers what they wanted, I would have built them a faster horse, right? And in the innovation space, we're always kind of grappling with the like, well, what are those repeatable things we can do to understand how we get from like faster horse to Model T? Mm-hmm. And I think I think people like Henry Ford are always held up as like, and Steve Jobs is like just these great innovators with genius insights. And and I I find myself at least really uh, compelled by the nature of of how do we uncover re- repeatable insights and mm-hmm, repeatable mm-hmm. Um, design success. So that that's another thing I just really love when I hear this story is just the mm-hmm. the way in which those activities really led to that. Yeah, I find that a lot of people uh, when we elevate success and make it a legend, it mm-hmm. sounds as though the insight was a spark that came out of nowhere, you know, like mm-hmm. Eureka. Oh my gosh. But I, I do really believe that there are methodologies and processes that if you were to stay true to them, you are very likely to end up with these insights. You can expect them about to hit you as mm-hmm. you begin synthesis, because at the beginning of synthesis, you just, you're a mess. You've come back from contextual research you have a truckload of observations. You have no idea what it means. But then you put it all up on a wall and then you start to see patterns and commonalities between why people are doing similar things, even if they might not be addressing the same topic. And I think that's when I, in the deep mess of synthesis, it just hits you at one moment. It's like, oh my goodness, yes, this is why they're doing it. Wow, got it. And so I think. Even with that said, synthesis is definitely my most favorite part of anything. Like, <laughs> field work is yeah. number two, unfortunately, but synthesis is number one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're definitely fans of just the, the the process of sitting with an idea and really like honoring the people who you've interviewed, honoring the questions that you have, honoring the process of wanting to really understand their true needs, mm-hmm. their true behaviors, not just what they think they need, like you were mm-hmm. saying. Um, to then have those aha moments <laughs> of like sitting with it enough, like, is that the right word? Is this the right thing? What's really going on there? And you kind of have to have this curiosity and this patience to be willing to really sit and feel mm-hmm. that reward of those insights sparking. Um, and it could be really like, it could be like even that shift of 
um, it's not lighting a space, it's lighting an activity that somebody could pass by that statement and be like, oh, well, that's not much distinction. But the patience and the attention to say like, actually, no, that's a huge distinction. And look at all these other implications when you shift from space to activity. Um, so yeah, we love the, the synthesis and those aha moments. And it's so rewarding when you take that time. Absolutely. And I think if it's okay, if you'll indulge me, I just wanted to say a couple of things about synthesis where it, it can be really tricky when you start to go down a path of synthesis with a, okay, I know I have to find this one problem and then we will go find that solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being in a generative mindset where, okay, we're here to understand what's going on and generate opportunities, whether or not these problems even exist today. And I think that's really where we can get to innovation. Because too many times, evaluative research is passed off for generative research, just because it's contextual, but it's not. And so I think that's one of my passions where I really want to distinguish between the two. Yeah. Amrita, I'm curious, like, how do you, (laughs) when you look at outcomes of research, are you able to tell if something was truly generative or or evaluative? Are you able to see it like post? I think it uh, when I talk to other teams and uh, they present things to me where okay, you know this is this is the thing that changed our project, and I'm like, okay, that's wonderful. Tell me how you got here, and that's where it begins, right? And, and yeah. it's very interesting. Sometimes people just want to go down a road because they have a hunch that that's where the problem is. And that's when you can just say, well, wait a minute. Did you consider the opposite? Like, oh, no, we didn't. Well, there might be some meat in there. And so I think uh, through the years, I have started to be able to discern how people got to insights as well. Um, And I think even from there, what do you do with an insight once you have it? Because if you were going to go and design something that you were going to do to begin with, just with a few features here and there, that's not the true implementation of the insight because the insight has to be game-changing enough to guide the design. It directs the designers in a certain place mm-hmm. where it tells you where to go. Yeah, it requires great patience sometimes to sit in that space and wait for the thoughts and perceptions to mature. To seek true insight is requires a willingness to follow it with courage to wherever it takes you. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes even the work that we do is sort of inviting our clients to that courage. I see us as seekers of the truth. And so there's no right or wrong truth. There's just the truth. For the folks that are listening to the podcast and they're like, okay, I feel like I've been sitting in a meeting of uh, Insight Junkies Anonymous and I'm convinced, right? I'm convinced I need, I want these types of insights from the people, uh, my customers. I want these types of insights. Like when you think about people that are kind of new to research or new, you know, they, they've never really had a, they've never used uh, sort of qualitative research, the type of research that we do, generative research as part of their work with their own customers. Like where would you recommend they start? I think one of the easiest eye-opening ways to do that uh, for me is to encourage people to do personal immersions. Meaning if you are 
working on a product that is, say, about uh, a shoe, then you are likely to recruit users who are runners or not and extreme users on both ends, but then become one of those users. Become an extreme user for a month. Get up at five o'clock every morning and go running for an hour. Just, just do it for the mm-hmm. sake of research. And you will come up with a lot of insight mm. just from that experience. And that starts to build empathy for the users that you might meet later on or alongside that journey. So it's it's very difficult to just say, okay, I'm empathic today and I'm going to go talk to people and I'm going to understand how they feel. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So the easiest way to get there, I think, is to actually go through it yourself. Ah, oh, that's really great advice. If somebody is wanting to read some of the things that you've written, I know you publish quite a bit on the web. What's the best way to find uh, things that you've written? So you can uh, find a lot of things that I am working on on my portfolio website. It's called amritakulkarni.online. So it's my first name, last name, dot online. And I think uh, that is a really good starting point as I start to put in more links to all the other Gensler work that I'm doing as well. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us today. It was a real pleasure. And thanks also to all of our listeners for joining uh, for this episode of Experiences That Matter. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Today's episode was hosted by me, David Whited. Mike Nowak. And Carissa Shelton. Editing by Daniel Santrella. Original music by Daniel Santrella and Tyler Edders. Cover art by Teresa Berg and Bridget Calling. Katie Sue Fisher does our scheduling and administration. And Andreana Pacella is our beloved producer. For more information on Highland, visit our website at highlandsolutions.com or connect with us on Twitter at, at Highland Chicago.